0: Of Hebrews. This morning we'll spend our time primarily in the first three verses, but we'll look about a few places about as we get an overview of the book before we do. As you're turning there, allow me the opportunity to just say thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to this week being able to open God's Word, take a paragraph out of it, and just talk about it and study it and think deeply about the things of God and talking about the pictures of our redemption. He's great images that God gives us about what he's done for us and who he is and how glorious he is. Uh, In particular, I have a a special thank you I want to give to you. I had a a surprise last weekend where we had a couple of guests who apparently in the winter time what they do is just travel through the state of Florida basically and so we were their next stop, and apparently they had been here the stop before and the prior Sunday. And as we were making announcements about everything that had gone on with Grace at Shans and Gainesville and uh, all the potential complications and how that amazingly worked out, and it's a very long story of things I would uh, tell you about uh, anyway, they said, we already knew everything about what Grace was going through because we were over in Fort Myers last week and they were praying about her. And that was really neat. And I appreciate that so much. So uh, thank you uh, very much for that. That really means a lot for us. Uh, we've gone through a lot with her over the years. And from time, some of you know that from time to time we've stopped in here over vacations. And uh, really I'm grateful for the congregation here and grateful for your continued prayers. She's doing very well, so well that I could bring her with me this week. And so we'll be able to enjoy our time together with you. I'm glad to see all of you fanning yourselves because that means I'm not the only one. I was about ready to peel the tie off because I'm dying in here and I haven't even started yet. So if you see me start getting shorter because I'm melting, that's going to be the reason why. I'm going to do our best here, but... Appreciate that you're here uh, this morning. Looking at the book of Hebrews, if I were to ask you about the book of Hebrews, you'd probably not think that's a terribly exciting book, because if I said to you, what is the book of Hebrews about? I think if you looked in the study Bible or picked up any common resource, it would say, well, it's about these Jewish Christians who are going back to Judaism. And you'd say, well, that's terribly boring because I'm in no threat of going back to Judaism, so we really don't need to study the book of Hebrews. It has no point to me whatsoever. Great for them, but what is the point of it for us? I'm not going to go back to Judaism anytime soon You can keep those animal sacrifices and all that. And I want to put forward to you as we're going to look at the first few verses in a moment that that's not what the book of Hebrews is about at all. Uh, It's not even close to the idea behind it. In trying to get a sense of it, it is important to to approach a book and really get a sense of well, what is it really about? What is it trying to say? It is interesting that if you went through the book of Hebrews, you might notice that the book never ever talks about Jewish Christians going back to Judaism. It'll never say that. It never says, now all you guys, you know, you just need to quit going back to the Law of Moses and practicing the Law of Moses, which we know the New Testament quite plainly knows how to talk about. You see that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, the concern of circumcision and that happening. We see that problem even a little bit in the book of Galatians. You've gone to another gospel. What are you doing going back to that false gospel? It's not even a gospel at all. I'm afraid that my work for you has been in vain. The book of Hebrews doesn't do that. However, it's pretty consistent. If you pulled out your study Bible, that's exactly what it's going to say that the book is all about. The reason why is because What we have the propensity to do is what we will do is what's called the error of mirror reading. And what I mean by that is this. If we read that a congregation or a group or a book speaks of a problem, what is our natural inclination to say? They must have had that problem. And I would dare say, like this week I'm going to talk about faith and my point is not that I believe all 110 of you all have a problem with faith and that's why I'm speaking to you about those things. We, sometimes what we do is we take something like 1 Corinthians, where we see that that is exactly what that book is about. Where Paul is addressing certain problems and saying, here's what you are doing, here's what you believe, and you shouldn't be doing those kinds of things. And therefore we'll apply that to all over the New Testament. Well, if it says that they were doing this, and that means they must have had a problem with that. If they say, you know, have faith, well, I guess they had a faith problem. And what that's called by scholars uh, is mere reading. And just because we teach on something doesn't mean there's necessarily a problem. I I dare say in the 21 years I've been preaching, every sermon is not me sitting down and going, now what problem do you guys have? Okay, I guess I'll write a sermon about that. That's not the basis uh, of preaching. In fact, if you go to the very end of the book of Hebrews, you'll notice this important declaration about what this book is about. Hebrews 13, verse 22. By the way, I find it fascinating that so many New Testament books and letters tell you the reason why they were written after you get done reading it. So that then you go, oh, I need to read that again. <laughs> you just told me what that was all about. Let me do that again. First John, as we mentioned this morning already, does that. Notice the same thing here. Hebrews 13, verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly... Now there's two things I like about that. Number one, he says this whole book was a writing to to you briefly. So any sermons that we do are very brief because if I were to preach all of the book of Hebrews, that would take a really long time. And he says, ah, that was something I just wrote to you briefly. The second thing that I think is really important though is he calls what he did a sermon. Notice that he says... Bear with my word of exhortation. That's an idiom. And you see that used elsewhere. If you remember in Acts chapter 13, when the Apostle Paul comes into the synagogue and they ask of Paul, Do you have a word of exhortation? And what does he do? He preaches a sermon. He says, Yep, I do. Let me go ahead and preach a sermon. Which explains everything about the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? When you open the book, everybody goes, Who's the author? And who are the recipients? And where's the section of thanksgiving? And where's all the things that we are used to for a letter? It's not a letter. It's a sermon. Right out of the gate, He's going to start preaching a sermon to these Christians. And that's why we don't have any of the things that look like a letter until the very end, the last couple of lines where you have a greeting, and that's it. This is a sermon that's being proclaimed. We need to read the book of Hebrews in that way one of the things that if I were to ask you then what is the book of Hebrews ultimately about probably I would get a close consensus that we would all say well Jesus is better and that's right you're going to see that all throughout the book the superiority of Christ is declared all throughout the book but we need to stop and ask the question why what is the point of that The book of Hebrews cannot just merely be a bunch of lessons or sermons basically telling you Jesus is better. These are Christians. They know Jesus is better. That's why they're Christians. What's the point of that? What are you trying to engage the audience to do or understand on the ground of Jesus is better? That is a very important question to the scheme of the book, to the scheme of what this sermon is about. Why should we understand that Jesus is better? And As I mentioned, typically what happens is we say, well, Jesus is better. Don't go back to the old law. And that's not the As I'll show you in a moment. Consider all the warning sections that are found in this book. If you've scoped the book or done an overview of the book or read through it recently, you will note that the, the author here, as he preaches his sermon, will suddenly stop. And give a warning, right? And you'll see that happen over and over again, chapter 2, verse one. He'll warn them, pay careful attention that you do not drift away.' So very intense warning that he gives there. Do not neglect this great salvation because if you do, you will be drifting away. A little bit later, He will tell them to watch out for an unbelieving heart and to hold on to their original confidence. Again, another warning about drifting, that they are letting go and falling back. Chapter 5 through chapter 6 is a long warning section saying I should be able to speak to you as mature, but instead you're dull of hearing. And again, a warning is given in that section that they would not fall away. Chapter 10, a section we probably know very well about The warning there that they cannot continue in sin. If we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. A warning there about not going back and not losing heart for our God then is a consuming fire. And then in chapter 12, He gives another warning that they would fail to obtain the grace of God. Warning after warning, and all of the warnings center around the idea of Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't fall away. And that should cause us to ask a question then well, what's going on in the lives of these Christians? That they're being challenged to such a degree that this sermon is all about telling them don't quit. Don't fall back. Don't give up. Hold on to your original confidence. Don't fall back, don't shrink back, but continue to press forward. What is going on? What exactly is their situation? It is interesting when you look at chapter 12 and verse 4, you might remember the phrase where he says there that you have not struggled against sin to the point of shedding blood. Whatever is going on with these Christians, they're not dying for the cause of Christ. He says, your struggle against sin is not to the point of death. But if you'll turn over to chapter 10 and verse 32, you'll notice that he does describe what they've gone through. It's the one little window we have into the recipients. We don't know who they are. We know nothing about them, but we do know this. Hebrews 10 verse 32. But recall in former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. Notice what he describes. Okay, you haven't shed the struggled against it to the point of shedding blood. But what have they gone through? Did you catch it? They're suffering. Things are hard. He says you're enduring reviling reproach. People start saying stuff about you for being a Christian. They're publicly maligning you. You are dealing with a social pressure. The culture of the day is pressing upon them where they are saying things against them. In fact, he even goes on to say, some of them have afflictions that are going on. Some were being thrown into prison. Some of them are being thrown, uh, thrown into prison and some are having their property taken away. Now think about what the book of Hebrews is setting up. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a bunch of Christians who are going through some suffering. They're going through hard times. And in particular, the difficulties and the affliction is coming from society. That's pressing upon them negatively and saying things about them. And making their life difficult for being a Christian. In fact, sometimes they're making their life so difficult that they're even taking away property. And even putting them in prison. Now not all the time. Notice he says, now some of you and some of you helped those who had been thrown in prison and some of you lost property. So not widespread property loss, but they are going through difficulties because they wear the name Christian. Does that kind of start feeling like our culture right now of where we're moving? It's not so simple to be a Christian anymore. Proclaiming the name starts having pushback now. Now it's socially unacceptable. Now you are dealing with cultural pushback. That's where these Christians are. They're not dying persecuted yet, but it's not favorable to be a Christian. And the writer of Hebrews now spends his time in this book telling them, don't give up. I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to lose heart. In the face of that affliction, in the face of that suffering... I do not want you to give up or to go back. What I think then is interesting is what we could do then in putting together the idea of what this book would be about is that the sermon that the writer of Hebrews is going to give to them and the solution that he provides for the crisis of faith is that a Christian needs a more substantial view of who Jesus is to endure suffering, to endure affliction, to deal with a society that turns negative against the followers of Christ. The answer that the writer of Hebrews says is you need to see how much better Jesus is than anything else in life. I want you to be so impressed by who He is that you will hold on and not give up. That you will maintain that confidence in the face of such resistance because you have a deeper vision and a greater understanding of who Jesus is. That's the frame of the book. Now, who wants to study that? Now we're like, all right, let's go. It's not about, you know, let's not offer sacrifices. That's not the issue. The issue is don't give up. And rather than looking at the book of Hebrews and saying, okay, so now don't go back to the tabernacle, what the writer of Hebrews is not denigrating anything in the book but saying, as great as Moses is, do you know how much greater it is in Christ? As great as that tabernacle was, do you understand how great a tabernacle we have in Christ? As great as all of those Old Testament symbols and pictures and images that are given And they are high and glorious and important. The writer of Hebrews is coming along and saying, do you understand how much better Jesus is even to that? As amazing as those things are, Jesus far surpasses that. And having a vision of the superiority of Christ is what gives confidence and endurance and helps us to stand then in the face of such difficulties. It is God's book then to reach out to Christians and to deal with discouragement. Because friends, what believer, who among us, has not been in the grip of discouragement at one point or another? Who has not felt the shame of trying to do what is right as a Christian and there is some kind of pushback, some kind of scorn, some kind of mistreatment? And often we can denigrate them and go, well, I wasn't killed for the cause of Christ, so I can't identify the people in the Scriptures. You're right, not with some of them, but you can identify with these people. Because you're making a stand and doing what is right in the name of Christ and you're suffering for that. That you are dealing with the difficulty. You are dealing with the pushback. And here is the writer of Hebrews writing to a discouraged group of Christians who are facing pressures from society because of their faith. And he begins and wants to tell them, don't give up. It's with that lens in mind, I want to just study with you the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1 to see how he would open this sermon now as he writes to these Christians under those circumstances to give them an encouraging word. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by a Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His powerful Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice how he simply begins. In the past, God spoke to the prophets, He spoke to our forefathers, our ancestors. Through prophets, through servants, through messengers. And that information then came in bits and pieces. You can imagine as you think about the days of the prophets. How you would get pieces of information at various times in various ways through different prophets. That's his his beginning point. In the past you just had prophets come along. And I want you just to think about that idea for a minute. Do you know how glorious it must have been to be living in those days? And all of a sudden God would raise up a prophet and he would say, here's what God says to the nation. That would have been so exciting. God has intervened and given a message and it's come to the prophet Isaiah. And he stands up and says, here's what God says. Here's what's going to happen. And sometimes it was a message of doom. And sometimes it was like Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, oh my people. But God had spoken to them. And with that in mind, I want you to notice what he does is he just amplifies that and says, You know, in the past, God spoke through servants. He spoke through messengers. Do you understand what you have now? Most of our translations will say there has spoken to us by his son. There's not really any article there. A few translations will say by a son. And I think that's the intended contrast is that the point is not divinity yet. He's going to do that in verse 2 for certain. But the contrast is in the past he spoke through servants in pieces. And this time he didn't send a servant. He sent a son. Reminds me of those parables where first God sends servant after servant after servant and then God says, surely they will listen to my son. The idea is of that of relationship. In the past, they had the servants come piece by piece. Now the Son arrives once for all and declares this great message, which you see there in verse 2, but in these last days He has spoken by us. And a lot of people get confused by the last days. I, I think I've got a decent way to boil it all down because people ask, are we still in the last days? What are the last days? But in the economy of God's time in Scripture, you see essentially two ages. You have the ages of when God is making promises. You Think about what God promised even with Adam and Eve. Promises to Abraham. Promises to Isaac. Promises to Jacob. Promises through Moses. Promises even to Joshua. David, Solomon, you are in the age of promises. All waiting for what? The age when all that's going to get fulfilled. The age in which there's going to be the fulfillment of all those things promised. That's why Peter can stand up as was read for us this morning quite well from Acts 2. And he's quoting Joel and Joel didn't say the last days. Why was the days he's stating the last days? Because the promises of God were being fulfilled right before their eyes. That's the last days. Everything that God had promised is being fulfilled, coming into fruition. So yes, we still stand in that as those promises continue to unfold as we wait for our Lord and Savior to come back and return. It's not an idea of, okay, you know, well, where are we in this this time frame, but it's just simply in the past God just made lots and lots of promises. And when Christ came, All those promises were being fulfilled. They all began to be unfolded. You see it unfold in Christ's arrival. You see it unfold in Acts 2 with the establishment of God's kingdom and on and on it goes. You see this unfolding before their eyes. And that's what he's pointing out here. These last days as God is fulfilling His promises, all of God's saving promises would be fulfilled. Now... With this idea, notice how he describes the Son in verse 2, because the picture is just amazing. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. We, we, we struggle with that idea that He is the heir of all things, or why He is even called the Son. Why would you call Him Son? As in our mind, that starts conjuring up something lesser. But if you could put yourself back in ancient Near Eastern times, and if you could think about a kingdom, think of some ancient realm, what did it mean to be the firstborn son? How important was that? What was entitled to the idea of a firstborn son of a king who ruled over an empire? That is a position of privilege and power and might. That's what's supposed to come into the mind when you read Son. It's not about genealogy and God having you know, lesser gods or something like people sometimes come up with today. It is all about full rights, full privileges, all about an inheritance. It is a way to distinguish between the persons of God I say, here is the Son, but He is a full privilege, full position. In fact, you'll even see in verse 3, He's going to say, He's clearly equal in every way. There's nothing lesser about Him. But the idea to recognize there's something very powerful and majestic and amazing about Him, so much so that it says there, through whom He also created the world. Start thinking about what the writer of Hebrews is picturing with him that there is no part... There's not a single part of any of the creation that is not under His control. The writer of Hebrews along with other places like in Colossians chapter 1 will describe the idea that what happened is that Jesus not only made the world but that it was made for Him. By Him all things were made. There's not a thing made that wasn't made without Him. And it was all made for Him. That's an amazing statement. Just please think about everything that ever exists was made by Jesus and made for Him. If you put the world in that frame, that changes everything about how we think about ourselves. Friends, that's a whole new life purpose. If everything that has ever been made was made by Him and for Him, then why do you exist for Him? You don't exist for your job. You don't exist for the hobbies. You don't exist for entertainment. You don't exist for all the things that we often get stuck in in this world. We exist for Him. He made us, and I want you to think about the power of that. All things are made by Him and are made for Him. Not anything that was made was made doesn't made by Him. In fact, you'll notice the imagery of that power continues in verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 describes it that way. That you are beholding the glory of God in Jesus. You are seeing God's glory on display when you see His teachings, when you see His life. In fact, He goes on to say in verse 3, He is the exact imprint of His very being. Remember, when Jesus says, I've got to leave, and the concern of the apostles, where are you going to go? Well, just show us the Father and it is enough. What strong words? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. You're not missing one iota of the glory of God or His nature or His imprint or His being when you look at me is what Jesus says. That's who He is. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His very being. And friends, the word that just staggers me at the end of verse 3, He upholds the universe by His powerful Word. He upholds the universe by His powerful Word. The only reason the world continues to be the way it is is because God says so. The earth is still spinning right now because the sun has determined that it will still keep spinning. He sustains or upholds all things By His powerful Word. We understand His powerful Word. In Genesis 1, it's His powerful Word that creates. And here the writer of Hebrews says, not only does it create, it's the whole reason anything is still going on right now. If the Lord spoke the Word for the world to stop, it would stop right now. He upholds it all by His powerful Word. In fact, you can use a little bit of logic right here. Because the world exists right now, therefore there still must be God. Because it only stands, because He says so. It only exists. It only spins. Which, by the way, please allow that to be a comfort for you. When you get done with the 6 o'clock news and you're ready to jump out the window, just remind yourself, the only reason the world is still spinning is because God says so. It's alright. The world is still intact because He continues to let it spin by His powerful Word. And when He's ready for it to stop spinning, He'll let it stop spinning. He'll shut it down. We trust in this Almighty God, in this Almighty Son, by whom and for whom all things exist and by His powerful Word, by His powerful Word, the creation then continues and the creation still exists. Now, I want you just to pull back for a minute in these few verses and just think about what was just told to us about the Son. We're told in the past God's spoken many different times in many different ways through prophets to various individuals in the past. In these last days He's spoken singularly by a Son. So, greater importance. Not just another messenger. Not just another servant. But great importance, the Son has come and He has declared the message. And consider the nature of the Son. He has been appointed as ruler and heir over all things. He rules over it all. It all belongs to Him. In fact, it was made by Him. It was made for Him. He is on the throne and He is ruling over all of it. He is the heir of it all. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. He reflects everything about God's glory. When you see the Son, you see the Father. You are not missing anything about the nature of God when you see the Son, for He is God Himself. Not only that, He upholds the universe by His powerful Word. And I want you just to stop and think about it for a minute. So here is the sun. And all that the writer has done is just rub into the mind of the audience. Do you see how powerful the sun is? Do you understand his majesty? Do you understand his glory, his power, his might? He rules over it all. It only exists because of him. It only exists because he spoke it into being. And it only continues because he continues to say so. And he is God himself, the exact expression of his very being, the radiance of the glory of God. What will the Son do with all of that power and all of that majesty and all of that might? I would like for you to imagine if you were of the creative type and you made something, make some kind of object. Let's say you're good at pottery. You're going to make an object. You start making it. And you're the creator and it's made for you. And the object doesn't come out the way you made it. That's me, I'm terrible. I am not artistic at all. Not creative at all. Zero craftability whatsoever. And so you're making the object, making the object, making the object, refining, reforming, making, and it doesn't come out the way it's supposed to be. What do you do with that object? You made it. And you made it for you. It's yours. You can do with whatever you want with it. And you keep trying to make beautiful pottery and it just kind of keeps coming out like an ashtray. you got nothing else to do with it. I don't know. It's kind of a bowl. What do you do with it? Don't you discard it? It's not what you made it to be. It's not what it's supposed to be. And you have power over it. What do you think God's perception of the creation is? All things were made by him and for him. How's this place spinning in terms of what it's supposed to be? For the glory and the majesty and the name of God. What should he do with this? Because this place doesn't look like what it's supposed to be, does it? Everything I read is that everything was made for the glory of God. All creation is supposed to be praising God. All things exist for Him. And it looks like there's nothing that's giving Him that glory and honor and praise. And with all of that might, and with all of that power, and all of that rule and authority, notice what the sun does. In the middle of verse 3, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What ought to happen is the destruction of creation for not being what it's supposed to be. But with all of that might and all of that power and all of that rule and all of that authority and all of that strength, it says he comes and makes purification for sins. You just have to be blown away. You just have to be blown away. In the past, God sends messengers. Does anybody listen? Does anybody listen? You've read the prophets. How they do it: listening and reforming and turning. So he sends a son. How do people do in regards to the Son? Rejection. How are they still doing in regards to the Son? Rejection. What do we do and how we live our lives? Rejection. And He comes and He makes purification for sins. With all of that might and all of that power, He uses that power to purify and to sit down at the right hand of God Friends, think about that imagery in verse 3. When you go back to the tabernacle, how many chairs were inside the tabernacle for the priest to sit on? (laughs) They didn't sit, right? That's one of the points the writer of Hebrews will make later. They're always working, always going. There's always something to do. When you read the Levitical system, you begin to wonder, was there a moment they were never making a sacrifice? Because you didn't just make an annual sacrifice. You didn't do it monthly. And you didn't just do it weekly. You did it daily. And then not only did you have daily offerings and sacrifices, when people sinned, what did they do? They brought animals to the tabernacle for offering. Do you think there was ever a break? We have millions of Israelites in the wilderness. And even if they all lived perfectly for one day, which we know they didn't, you still would have had priests making the daily offerings and the weekly offerings and the monthly offerings and the annual offerings. Be impressed with the imagery that Jesus comes and He sits down. His work is so perfect and so complete that He can just sit down. Done. With all of that power and with all of that might, He makes purification for sins and sits down. Now friends, in the scope of your life, when did Jesus come and make purification for your sins? This is what I think is just the most mind-blowing on living on this side of the cross. You know that Jesus died for your sins and for mine before we even existed? Before we ever came along, the powerful almighty son says, I'm dying for future sins. For every single person who comes along. Whoever lives on this earth, I'm going to do this once for all purification for sins because of who I am by my power and by my might and this creation was made by me and made for me. I make purification for sins, not just simply for the past. But all of us who are alive even to this day, this is the power of the sacrifice that is being described here by the writer of Hebrews. With all that He is and all that He has, He makes purification for sins and takes His seat at God's right hand. The emphasis of these first three verses is Jesus with all of that power and with all of that might has purified your sins if you're a follower of His. He has every right And I think by our thought process would say and should take a creation that is not working the way that it was intended and created to work and say, ah, just like we would. With anything that we would make and it's not working the way it does. If you have something in your home that doesn't work anymore and it's not working the way it's supposed to, what do you do with it? Toss it. Start over. He should start over. Forget it. making purification for sins He comes and sits down at the right hand of God. When Jesus comes and does His work and He says it is finished that includes all the sins that we have committed with all that power and might that He can do that. Now let me bring you to the message of what that would matter. Remember that he has spoken and said, alright, God has spoken completely, decisively, singularly through his Son. His Son is glorious, fulfilling all of the promises of God and he has made purification for your sins. Now what are these Christians going through? Suffering. It's hard to be a Christian. It's not easy to proclaim the name of the Lord. It's not easy to stand up for your faith. There is social rejection for doing what's right. There is social rejection for saying, here's what the truth of God says. This is how we are to live. This is what we're supposed to do. And the world rejects it. That's exactly their world. And you want to know what the tendency is? We want to give up. We want to go... Nobody wants to listen anymore. And we're even tempted by ourselves to just... Okay, well, let's just change the message. Just make it softer. Let's make it easier. Let's let's change our social point of view about things. What's the writer of Hebrews doing? You want to know why you shouldn't give up? Because God didn't give up on you. God has not given up on you. With all of our sins, with all of our weaknesses, with all of our failures, with all of the ways we have turned our back on Him, the times that we have chosen to go the easier path and we have refused to take a stand for God and we've decided not to take the right course, but rather the wrong course, the easy path. And we've hidden our Christianity when we've covered it over. (laughs) The whole point is that Jesus has solved everything so that you can stay with Him. Don't give up. Don't quit now. Don't give up when you see all that Jesus has accomplished. Don't quit because of your sins. Don't quit because of your failures. The whole reason Jesus came was for the full knowledge that we were going to fail. He died before you and I existed. He knew we were going to fail. That's why He came. Don't be here at this point in your life and now go, I can't do this. My sins are too much. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Pressure of society is too much. Pressure of family may be getting too much. Don't give up. Don't quit. With all of the power to make the world and keep the world spinning, He has the power to take away sins And Jesus has done it. Don't quit. Don't let go of that confidence you have. And don't walk away from God who loves you so much that with the power to destroy the world, He says, I've come to save it. I'm here to rescue you. And as we end this morning, I just ask you, where are you at in your faith today? Is your faith shaken? Has it been difficult to be a follower of Christ? Have you felt like giving up? I think if we're honest, we don't say to each other. There's always times where we felt like I need to, I'm just going to give up. It's too hard. It's too challenging. I look at it and I go, of the millions upon millions of sins, how can you possibly take me back? Died, know knowing full well that's exactly what we would do your sins are covered by the Lord if you give your life to him put your faith in him and follow him with all of your heart I encourage you if you are in teetering faith to dedicate your life back to the Lord today to not give up to not lose heart to continue to press on to be transformed by the word of God to make the changes to follow Him and serve Him, to love Him because that's what He wants. If you're not a Christian, I want you to see the hope of the Gospel. The hope of the Gospel is not be perfect and do good. We all failed at that. We'll all sign on the sheet. We're utter failures at that. The hope of the Gospel is in spite of our failures, Jesus has come to save and now we're responding to Him by loving Him, following Him, and serving Him because He's loved us so much away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so you can have a relationship with Him. will not you come and do that now While we stand here while we sing.